Howdy, folks. Welcome to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the Redneck, and you bet I've gone green, and I'm trying to talk you into it, too. Remember that on this program, when we say go green, we mean that in a multiple of ways. The first way is a commitment, understanding, genuine appreciation for deep ecology, not merely environmentalism or conservationism, but a recognition of the interconnectedness of all life on this planet. The second way is a more explicitly electoral way, as in go Green Party. I'm a member of the Green Party and I'm trying to convince you to do it too. And to be clear, not out of just some shake my fist at the system, but an understanding of history and an understanding that if we want systemic change, it's always required ordinary people organizing themselves outside the dominant two-party system into alternative parties and making demands on the system. And my goodness, this current topic tonight or today, depending on when you're watching and or listening, will really prove the point because we're going to be looking at the genocide in Gaza. And when we do so, we're going to be looking at three big picture topics. Number one, we're going to be looking at the rising resistance to the Israeli government's policies, not only across the globe, but specifically within Israel itself and amongst Israeli Jews and Palestinians. Second thing that we're going to talk about is the International Court of justice and uh, the ruling and what that represents. And then for the last part of the program, we'll be joined by Margaret Kimberly, the executive editor of Black Agenda Report, uh, to talk about a scathing essay uh, that she wrote. In the meantime, while we wait on Margaret Kimberly, I'm going to bring in Jack Rabbit, that handsome bastard that you all know and love, uh, onto the program, our producer, Jack Rabbit. How you doing, Jack Rabbit? Hey, David. I'm doing good. Um, you know, not so much. Uh, in relation to our topic for today, but um, yeah, no, let's. Uh, it I, is, uh, great to be on. Great to see everyone. Uh, thanks for being here, folks. And I do want to, before we dive in, to really acknowledge that our 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 readership on Substack, our our uh, podcast downloads continue to grow. Uh, we have a growing audience on both Rumble and YouTube uh, and Facebook. So I just want to thank you. Please do sign up and subscribe. Remember, the Substack is where we put out weekly writings. Then YouTube, Rumble, and Facebook are where the live video streams are. And then, of course, you can also get this podcast wherever you download your podcast. So, Jack, let's just jump right into this very first topic. And that is, there really is a rising resistance uh, to the atrocities being committed by the Israeli Defense Forces. Yeah, and I've got a uh, a uh, Twitter post here from Dan Cohen, who is an excellent follow. If you're not following Dan Cohen, please do. He's very smart and knowledgeable, and he's got a really strong voice in support of the Palestinians. And uh, this one here is a, uh, a Knesset meeting that is interrupted by some um, some folks. And you can see there. This is after Netanyahu rejects the ceasefire. Families of captives in Gaza stormed into the Knesset meeting to demand an immediate uh, an immediate deal. You will not sit here while our children die, and we're watching just uh, a bunch of people pouring into a Knesset meeting um, in Israel. 
And of course, that's you're listening to Hebrew, so I can't translate it for you. But the uh, according to Dan Cohen in Hebrew, at least one of the quotes is, "You will not sit here while our children die." Dan Cohen goes on to say, "The Israeli government is sacrificing its own people," and I think that that's really worth pointing out, Jack. What we're seeing is uh, a it's not merely frustration. There is a palpable rising outrage at the Netanyahu government uh, and the ham-fistedness uh, of the policies there. Again, this is this is from uh, uh, Israeli Jews in Israel uh, beginning to protest, and they're doing so at a very heavy cost. The uh, Israeli government really has a uh, uh, a hard line against dissent. Now, David, do you, I'm I'm really interested. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more, like why you feel like this, um, what we're seeing is is so important? Like, what what is it that that really lights up for you about this? Well, you know, uh, thank you for the uh, the question, uh, Jack. Because to me, look, uh, it's a horror show in in Gaza that the, the multiple occupations are illegal and immoral. Got it. Uh, and we, you know, we on this program, we have and will continue uh, to talk about that. But I think that there's something deeper going on when you have Israeli Jews, because the the Netanyahu regime and those in support of the 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 horrific military response to October 7 have continuously attempted to use the shield of uh, uh, that they are protecting uh, Israel that uh, and that they are that any criticism of them is by definition anti-Semitic. So the the rising opposition to the war by Israeli Jews living Jews living in Israel underlies uh, that that is simply not true. You couple that with uh, the the rising sentiment across the world of Jews who are saying stop ceasefire now. And uh, Jewish Voices for Peace is the organization I'm most familiar with. But I just really think it's important to recognize that whenever we talk about that, what we're seeing is something rather phenomenal, uh, Jack, which is, uh, again, it's not just broad sentiment, but a deepening sentiment. There is no doubt that the Netanyahu regime and the Israeli Defense Forces are losing in the court of public opinion. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to kind of like argue that, um, you know, you're anti-Jewish when you're actually a Jewish Israeli who is protesting against the government that's kind of enacting these policies. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I also, I, I mentioned Jewish Voices for Peace. I, I want to lift them up for a moment because it's worth pointing out that Jewish Voices for Peace did not arise just because of uh, uh, October 7th. They, they've actually been around since 1996. They are arguably the largest progressive Jewish explicitly anti-Zionist organization anywhere in the world. I want to quote from their own website. Quote, we are organizing a grassroots, multiracial, cross-class, intergenerational movement of U.S. Jews in solidarity with the Palestinian freedom struggle guided by a vision of justice, equality, and dignity for all people, end quote. I mean, that's clear and unambiguous. Check this out, Jack. 
They have over 300,000 supporters, over 1 million followers on X, formerly known as Twitter. And they've got chapters, like dozens, if not more chapters on college campuses all across the country. So what you're seeing is, again, within Israel, uh, a, a, a rising resistance. And then uh, as part of the Jewish diaspora, uh, Jews are, are frankly coming together against this occupation. I think that's a very important point. Yeah, I mean, well, I, what I'd like to hear a little bit more from you is kind of like, how should we be approaching or thinking about what's going on? Because, you know, you'll see, you've seen uh, internationally massive protests, like just like hundreds of thousands of people coming out onto the street and protesting this ongoing like just massacre uh it's absolute you know, humanitarian tragedy unbelievable like just just horrible uh, but the the devastation continues like the occupation continues the the barbarism continues the bombing continues uh you know you're showing us you're you know you're talking to us about this growing movement in uh israel what what are we supposed to think because it just feels it feels to me and i don't think i'm alone in feeling this way that like you know there's there's all this protest going on the icj the international court of justice has actually like come out and said that there is cause to continue the the suit uh from south south africa that is uh, you know asserting that israel is committing a genocide uh but the you know despite that the the bombs continue to, to to fall the the aid continues to be rejected and only just recently i'm not sure if you saw this or not but you know the main aid organization that has been supporting and sustaining palestinians has been def like basically the their their funding has been cut off um just this uh, this only just happened a couple of days ago where you know the united states the uk and a number of other uh, countries have basically taken Israel's word that a handful of UN um, uh, RWC members—that's the organization that that supplies aid to Palestinians and has been for uh, forever—you um, know that 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 there were some members of Hamas who worked for that organization, and therefore. You know that they they, uh, they they don't deserve this this funding anymore, um, and so and so it's it's actually like it's it's being cut off, and um, and it's devastating, and and so I and 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 I want to I'm just I kind of how should we be thinking about moving forward in this kind of climate where it feels so um, it just feels so devastating. Well, it is devastating, yeah. Jack, and you know I'm not going to sugarcoat it, and I'm not going to uh, to try to cheerlead uh, for the International Court of Justice uh, or anything else. Uh, I want to be, uh, I want to take it head on, uh, because what it's showing me is the uh, the fact that look, let's let's look directly at the International uh, Court of Justice and what that ruling did and didn't do, because I think that that's really important. So. <laughs> the remember, let's put it into context. So uh, South Africa brought charges of genocide against Israel, uh, arguing that the, uh, the the provisions of the genocide convention uh, were are being violated. and Israel is a signer to that. So 
you know, uh, the first thing Israel did was argue that that there was not jurisdiction to even hear this because there was no, quote, formal dispute between South Africa and Israel. And again, I don't want to get too legalistic, but I think it's important to recognize that there are there are legal wins here, even as there are in in the real world, Palestinians are going to continue to be massacred. But that's why it's complex, right? Uh, and I don't want to, to to either sugarcoat it, nor do I want to ignore that in many respects, this is a bigger victory than I and others had expected uh, out of the international court. Because the first thing that the IGC did was say that they do, in fact, have a jurisdiction. So a rejection of that uh, shows that there is what's known in law as at least prima facie evidence that Israel is committing the crime of genocide in contravention of the genocide, uh, genocide convention. So in a nutshell, what that means is that Israel will at some point be put on trial for genocide. It's a momentous decision that very few people, at least in my circle, thought would be possible. So the orders, though, are one, Israel must immediately ensure that the military does not commit acts within the scope of the Ge Convention Against Genocide. Two, direct and punish all members of the Israeli public who engage in the incitement of genocide against Palestinians. Three, ensure provision that urgently needed basic services and humanitarian aid are allowed. Four, to prevent the destruction uh, of and preservation of any and all evidence of allegation of genocide. And five, Israel must submit a report detailing how they are adhering to those orders within one month of the issuance. Now, again, these are very uh, legalistic uh, orders, but for the international court to make that uh, uh, ruling is something that's never happened before. So I want to acknowledge that there was something positive internet in the international uh, court uh, opinion. I also want to be clear and unambiguous uh, that it did not halt the uh, atrocities. It did not call for a ceasefire. And uh, we are seeing both the, 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 the what the tools of uh, international law can do, but we're also seeing how pathetic and weak those laws are really in the face of empire. And with that, I see that we are being joined by our dear friend and comrade, Margaret Kimberly. Uh, Margaret is the executive editor of the Black Agenda Report. If you're not watching the videos that they produce or reading the commentary or listening to their radio, go to their website, Black Agenda Report. I I read it, uh, frankly, consistent, consistently. And what I would say is I think that they are the heir of the true Black radical tradition. With that, I want to welcome Margaret Kimberly onto the program. Thank you. Hi. Hi, David. Hi, Jack. Uh, thanks for bearing with me and uh, uh, allow, holding it down till I could come on the call. It's good to be back. It's good to have you back. So, you know, good uh, to see you, Margaret. Margaret, uh, just to, to bring you up to speed. So we, we had a little bit of conversation on the rising resistance to this war in Israel. You know, for me, seeing uh, uh, Israeli Jews storm the Knesset, hearing uh, the, the, the Jewish left members of parliament uh, continue to, to, to rise up, uh, even under threat of having their party dismantled uh, by the Netanyahu government. I mean, what it shows me is that there is uh, 
there is dissent. And I don't just mean like, oh, finger wagging. There is something happening within the Israeli uh, state that I think is worth bearing repeating. I'm wondering if you're seeing the same thing and do you think I'm overplaying or overanalyzing that? Well, it's hard to say because, you know, the Israeli left, quote unquote, is small. Um, and then there are people who claim to be left until there is criticism from outside, and then they're not so left anymore. <laughs> so it's hard to talk about, it's kind of like here, um, it's hard to talk about an Israeli left. Um, there is dissension. There was, uh, uh, you and uh, viewers may have seen footage from uh, uh, a meeting where uh, relatives of the hostages that are still being held um, stormed a meeting. And they were furious, and they should be, because the Israeli government is using the hostages as a propaganda tool. There, there was a negotiation that had begun. People were being freed, and then they resumed uh, the bombings uh, of, um, of Gaza. So people are rightfully angry about that. Um, so it is. It's uh, it's it's very interesting. I I would say in this country we need to though concentrate on what our government is doing. The U.S. state is responsible for all of this. There would not be twenty five thousand dead people. There would not be this. Um, uh, uh, the charge of genocide, and the, I, I know I came in uh, 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 in the middle of what you were saying, but uh, I think the International Court of Justice, I feel mostly positive about their ruling. Israel asked the ICJ to throw the case out. They said, we are not throwing the case out. They said uh, genocide is plausible, and genocide... <clears throat> excuse me, the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide from 1948 describes genocide um, this way, it's intent, the intent to harm a group, an ethnic, racial, religious, or national group. The bar is not high. Uh, I think this is something new to us and I'm glad we have this opportunity. I hope people take the, uh, the time to really study this, the bar for genocide is rather low, and and rightfully so. I think they they came up with this criteria right after World War II, and they wanted to make sure that they could call genocide genocide, and um, that all the ways that uh, states can get around human rights abuses, uh, uh, that that those. Uh, uh, ruses would be prevented. And so the, the genocide convention, it's rather simple, intent to harm. And the South Africa's um, charge, frankly, was mostly based on, not just on what happened, but the words of Netanyahu, the words of other Israeli uh, ministers who said no one in Gaza is innocent. Uh, who used very violent eliminationist language. So uh, the court was correct in saying uh, the charge of genocide is plausible because the Israelis themselves have uh, given ammunition, showing, uh, maybe I shouldn't use the word ammunition, but that there is intent. They made, they were very clear that the killing has to stop. They didn't use the word ceasefire. Um, and there are 
people more expert than I on why they didn't actually use the word ceasefire, but they made it clear Israel has to stop killing people in Gaza. They uh, And they also... There, there is some element that they have to report within a week. So this ruling came down last Friday, January 26th. So by this Friday, in a few days, Israel has to uh, demonstrate some progress. They're also supposed to punish the people who um, uh, may have committed genocide. So uh, I uh, am more positive. Uh, and, and also the vote was overwhelming. There was only one non-Israeli judge who did not go along with the majority. It was 15 to two. Um, and uh, so the, and I, the other thing is that is important is that people all over the world are in solidarity with Palestine. There is revulsion about entire families being killed, about hospitals being bombed, about universities being blown up. All of these things that are documented about food being withheld. And I want to talk about the U.S. Uh, and what a coincidence. On the day of the ICJ ruling, the United States said it's cutting off funding to the um, UNRWA relief agency because Israel claims that uh, uh, 12 uh, employees of the UNRWA uh, were involved in the October 7th uh, Hamas uh, military attack. And yeah, I have and, to say uh, this. No, go ahead, Margaret. Go ahead. Please say, say, say what you got to say. Yes. So um, that is a war crime. War crimes are also defined, this time by the Geneva Conventions. People can look it up. Fourth Geneva Convention, Article 33. Yes, I memorized it. Collective punishment is a war crime. So when the United States withholds money from the UNRWA and in effect is taking food out of starving people's mouths, the United States is committing a war crime as defined by the Geneva Conventions. And I think we have to be very clear about these definitions. It's not about anybody's opinion. And the US is a signatory to the Geneva Conventions, to the UN Genocide Conventions, as is Israel. Well, I just want to point out, Margaret, because we had mentioned actually, uh, we had actually talked about br very briefly UNRWA's uh, funding being cut off. And I have this um, you know, tweet from Middle East Eye here where it points out that here we have a actual, uh, well, former Israeli official who is calling on January 4th, here it is, we are in at January 30th. This is well before like all this stuff was going down and they were de uh, demanding, they said the quote is, it will be impossible to win the war if we do not destroy UNRWA and this destruction must begin immediately. So this is something what I want to point out here is that all the, you know, I'm, I'm certainly 100% on board with all the stuff that you were talking about regarding, like how, uh, you know, just abysmal it is and and horrendous it is that Israel is is pushing for this, making these, and this is the thing it's really important I want to point out to folks. So far, as far as everyone knows, Israel has provided no evidence for what they are claiming. They're, they've they've provided no evidence that anybody knows about up to this point, okay? About this about this organization, but this is a lifeline to Palestinians in Gaza, right? It's a lifeline to them. They need this to to literally to live. It's not bad enough. It's not bad enough that the Israeli the Israeli government is cutting off food, water, energy, medical supplies. 
but on top of it now the aid organizations that they're to <clears throat> to kind of like remedy Israel's brutality have have basically been like have been demonized <clears throat> and and uh, of course Margaret we can't we can't take away the responsibility for these governments around the world who have been funding uh UNRWA who have made their decision to cut off that funding that's that's still their responsibility Israel is is reprehensible for its actions and they are they they are you know they have uh, you know regularly made accusations without any evidence and now once again you know we have another allegation coming from Israel um but i, I i'm pointing this out because it's clear that this is um, you know, this is a, a a plan that they had. This is something that they wanted to do well in mm -hmm. advance of the ICG ruling. And it shows, yes, thanks for pointing that out and for pointing out, you know, Trump cut off all funding to the UNRWA. Biden restored it and now has cut it off like Trump did. And in talking about domestic politics, I think we have to point all, all of this you know, Biden's case is simply demonizing Trump. Well, we can't have Trump. We can't have Trump. And you're doing just what Trump did. I mean, this is not the only instance of uh, Biden foreign policy being uh, Trump foreign uh, policy. But I want to say the, the blame for all of this death and destruction lies in Washington. Joe Biden is the one person who could end this. He is the one person. He's so, um, dare I say, stupid. He and his foreign policy team, the first thing he did was run over there, kiss Netanyahu's ring and give him a blank check. Um, and and they're trying to start a wider war with, uh, we know three American service uh, people were killed. Um, it's very murky. They're claiming it's Iran-backed militias. Is that somebody's name? Iran-backed militia? Is that on somebody's letterhead? Well, again, there's um, no. They they have no evidence that Iran is involved. None. That's the thing. None. None. None whatsoever. So this is a very dangerous moment because of a dangerous state. That is to say, the one we're all in. And so I'm going to use this opportunity, Margaret, actually to shift to the reason I, I uh, wanted to have you on. First, you're a fantastic guest, you know, and for matters of full disclosure, Margaret Kimberly and David Cobb are personal friends uh, and we're comrades. But I also uh, respect Margaret uh, as an insightful journalist, essayist uh, and commentator. And uh, Margaret, your recent uh, piece uh, in the Black Agenda Report, I thought was just so spot on. The title uh, got my att uh, attention immediately. Muslim and Arab-American Arab voters show Black people how to exercise political power. So when you point r rightly and correctly to the role that U.S. government policy is playing and responsible for uh, this genocide, uh, you know, you, you bring it right home to D.C. And I'm going to ask you, give us the essence of your recent essay. Yes. Uh, thanks, David. Uh, I, I wrote this. This has been on my mind for uh, last few weeks. Uh, there've, uh, there are groups of uh, Muslim voters, Arab American voters who have started a campaign called Abandon Biden, and they are pledging not to vote for Joe Biden in November. 
Uh, there are states like Michigan. Michigan is a must-win state for the Democrats. Uh, it does have a large uh, uh, Arab-American community. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, her district is in uh, Michigan and the city of Dearborn and others. And there are other states where, uh, you know, that Biden won by not very large margins. And you have a group of people who voted for him who say they will not do it again uh, because... Um, uh, uh, of, uh, of, of U.S. actions which have allowed this to uh, uh, go on. And so I, I, I was moved to write because Black people, Black voters feel trapped, um, uh, trapped in the duopoly, as my late comrade Glenn Ford used to say, where um, there is one party that is the white people's party, another that is the black people's party since the 60s. That's been the Democrats for black people, Republicans for white people. Um, and uh, black people feel like we have no choices, that we have to vote for Democrats. It doesn't matter how, uh, what they do, whether they help us, whether they hurt us. Um, uh, we are... Uh, too many of us feel like we have to vote for Democrats and we do not have a choice. And we have um, uh, voted for some pe pretty terrible people. I think of people like Bill Clinton, um, even even uh, Obama, uh, who was loved because he was the first black president. But I, I always felt that was a terrible mistake, um, to put it mildly. And uh, but these voters in Michigan, in Minnesota, there's a large Somali uh, community from Somalia, Muslim community there, uh, states where Democrats have to win who have said, we don't care. You are killing our people and we're not voting for you. They tried to schedule meetings with Biden. People said, no, nope, we're not going to meet with you. They tried to send a you know, campaign director ungling to Michigan. People said, nope, we're not meeting with her either. And I felt that it was important for Black people to see that you do not have to be afraid. You get what you want politically. We should drive the electoral system instead of thinking that it drives us. And I also think people forget, uh, you know, the the liberation movement, the civil rights movement has been fetishized, but people forget what, what those folks really did. They confronted the system. They made demands they knew the system did not want to um, uh, respond to. They knew Lyndon Johnson didn't want to deal with the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, but they mobilized anyway. And I think it's important for people to remember these things, not to feel cowed, but to show courage. And um, uh, I, I feel very, very uneasy about what the Biden administration is doing as much as I do not want to see Donald Trump as president again. It may not matter if Biden gets us in a wider war, which I am afraid could happen. You know, there's so much there to unpack, Margaret. I I, uh, I I feel obliged to make a comment. And that was, you know, you mentioned uh, Barack Obama. And I remember our dear friend and comrade, uh, Bruce Dixon, who uh, informed me, having been from Chicago, back when uh, Obama was first coming up on the scene in, uh, and uh, won Iowa, he said, oh, David, don't be fooled. Like uh, this man is a, is a, he is the black Bill Clinton. That's literally what he told me. 
And uh, when I like, I, I can genuinely uh, empathize and intellectually understand the feeling that I had so many of my uh, African-American uh, friends, sisters, brothers, siblings, non-conforming siblings who were like, somebody like me who looks like me is finally in the White House. And Margaret, I'll be honest, I kept my mouth shut, but here's what I thought. You know, I've had a whole lifetime of assholes who look like me in the White House, and all they ever did was screw me, my people, and your people, and everybody else. Like, we got to get past pigment uh, as if that somehow substitutes for substantive progressive policy. Do. We, we have to get past, uh, uh, I, I don't know, dare I say identity politics of, you know, somewhat troublesome term. But uh, uh, with uh, Obama, you know, a lot of people, uh, Black people, yes, but a lot of progressive left people who I felt should have known better or should succumbed. Everybody, almost, not not all of us, uh, many people succumbed to uh, the, you know, this charm offensive, this marketing juggernaut. It was a thing of beauty, the Obama, in a, you know, an evil kind of way. Uh, beauty, it's making people think he was a progressive when he wasn't. He never was. He was, as Bruce, uh, may he rest in peace, said, Obama was always a conservative guy. But he knew, um, he had that political gift for knowing what people wanted to hear, that people wanted change, um, that people wanted to be hopeful, all of that, the way he marketed his life story. I mean, it was- um, It was, it it was, was a master class. It was a yes, master it was. class. It, yes, it, it, and it, it so- Yes, but-, but you know, Margaret, I've got, Margaret, I've got, uh, I've got your, um, I've got your, some of your article here that I'd like okay. to kind of read and have you comment on. Um, so, uh, uh, just some some quotes that I pulled from there. So Joe Biden and every Democrat elected in the last 60 years owes his presidency to black voters. And then black people won legislative victory through their own efforts in creating a mass movement and political crisis that brought about change. The truth has been turned on its head. And we are taught that black people owe loyalty to Democrats when that party should reward loyalty with policies that black people want to see enacted. But every group in the country has not been cowed. Voters who identify as Muslim or who have Middle Eastern ancestry have put Joe Biden on notice that his aiding and abetting of Israel's war crimes in Gaza will cost him politically. Fortunately, the abandoned Biden campaign has shown no, no signs of letting up because its leadership knows how to get results and because they refuse to disrespect themselves and their people by rewarding a genocidaire with another term in the White House. How much could black people achieve with similar determination? In 2024 and beyond the words, but Trump should lose their power. So that's a lot there, Margaret, and I'd, I'd love to hear you comment on that. Well, you know, even Biden, it's like a throwaway line in his stump speeches. I owe my presidency to you, he'll say when he's uh, in front of an audience of black people. And that that is true. But it can't just be a throwaway line. It's um, uh, and I also want to say because of uh, what's going on in Gaza, the people who have disrupted his speeches, he can't give a speech anywhere without someone saying ceasefire now. And that is a very good thing. You know, he uh, uh, appeared at a uh, church in Charleston, South Carolina, the church where uh, the pastor and uh, eight parishioners were, were killed by a, a white supremacist gunman. 
it, it was disgusting. He, they claimed that this event was a memorial service to them when it was not. Uh, the church was full of campaign operatives. If you see photos of the people sitting in the pews, half of the people were white. And I'm not saying they, you know, white people can't go to church, but let's be for real. Who's sitting in the pews of Mother uh, Emanuel AME Church in Charleston? Black people are. So the uh, leadership of the church were um, uh, wrong in allowing this to go on. And the uh, congressman, uh, I can't, I. Ugh. Whenever I don't like someone, I can't think of their name. Clyburn. Clyburn. James Clyburn was, of course, sitting right there. Um, you know, he's this alleged, uh, what do they call him, a kingmaker? He's a leader, leader in the Democratic Party. He endorses whoever they coalesce around. That's all there is to it. But people stood up and confronted Biden. And that is a good thing. Um, so that they cannot be allowed to use Black people as a campaign backdrop to promote uh, something that's really evil. I think what the U.S. is doing in Gaza is evil. I do not think that's hyperbole either. Uh, so we have this, and Biden's approval rating is very low, uh, and they want to use Black people to help drag him across the finish line. Um, and I don't know that that's going to help anyway. Well, I guess that's a whole other story. But this means that Black people, we should see ourselves as being in the driver's seat. We should see ourselves as the group, the one group who can stand up and say, we're not going to vote for you unless you do this or unless you stop doing that, uh, rather than go uh, along with this losing, and we know what happens. It happens every four years that we end up with things we don't want and the things we need not done because uh, of a um, misapprehension about electoral politics and how to make popular demands. You know, Margaret, a lot there. I do want to uh, uh, underscore, lift up this idea that Black voters, just like women, organized labor, environmentalists, they're the, the core constituency of the Democratic Party, right? Uh, the, 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 the constituents that are reliable, consistent voters uh, for Democrats almost never get what they're asking for. In fact, to the contrary, they are literally taken for granted. And I got a quip for you. In electoral politics, if you get taken for granted, you just got taken, right? Like literally it's a shell game. It is a con game that the neoliberal Democratic Party play on their core constituencies. Again, black voters, BIPOC voters uh, generally, but black voters especially because of the historic role since the 1960s that black voters have played. You, do, you can do the same thing with organized labor, with the environmental movement, like literally every single organized constituency that does work in between elections to fight these neoliberal bastards then seem to fall in line and say, oh, but we're scared of the Republicans. I just, it is mind-blowing, the the cognitive dissonance. Well, it's, you know, I, I was just thinking of the expression, what is the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. That's why I'm a Green. I, after many years of voting for Greens, when I had the opportunity, I had to ask myself, well, why am I a member of the Democratic Party? That doesn't make any sense. And uh, the, the fear-mongering, the vote-shaming, uh, that it's uh, the fault of 
anybody who doesn't vote for Democrats or votes for Greens, it's their fault if Democrats lose. And my question is, don't the Democrats have responsibility to win? I mean, if Hillary Clinton couldn't get 13,000 more votes in Michigan, I think that was her fault. You know, how do you raise a billion dollars and then can't get 13,000 more votes out of just the city of Detroit alone? But um, uh, but this is what we're we're faced with. And Trump, you know, he is this outsized figure. He was the nightmare for black voters, someone who won because he was um, overtly racist. And um, uh, uh, where to begin with the problems with Trump? A very polarizing, I, I can't remember a president who was such a polarizing figure, but who has this, also has this, uh, this support from millions of uh, of people. So the, you know, the but Trump argument works, but it only works so far. There was a story in the New York Times a couple of days ago that a group of pastors of uh, black churches uh, 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 published an open letter, more than a thousand pastors saying Biden needs to have a ceasefire in Gaza because he will not get the black vote if he doesn't. And I think this was a very important story for the corporate media, especially the New York Times, all they do is cover for Biden, to actually acknowledge that he is in trouble. Uh, and for um, uh, clergy, many of whom do play a leadership role, to tell him, to do him a favor. And I want to tell people that, you know, if they're smart enough, they will see that uh, these folks have done Biden a favor. Um, that this uh, the situation in Gaza, for all the reason we've talked about, is it has be is becoming a deal breaker for millions of people. So I think it's true. So and and as soon as you say this, somebody always says, "Well, black people will all vote for Democrats." Yes, ninety percent of black people will give their votes to Democrats. But what will the turnout be? How much enthusiasm will there be? Well, actually, and I actually, Margaret, you know, I want to kind of like break in here because I actually have a. Oh, here, let me uh, let me share the correct thing. Here we go. Uh, this article from Newsweek from this month that describes, according to national and swing state polls re reviewed by Bloomberg, the former president and GOP front runner has between 14 and 30% of the black vote share as the country heads into an election year. So uh, not so sure that that trope uh, is necessarily. Yeah, it's, it's hard to it's hard to say. I think at the end of the day, uh, I I don't see it changing that much. I I'm I'm a little well, not a little. I I don't trust that information. I think Trump may get more, but it's not going to be um, a lot more. I I Biden's biggest problem is going to be turnout. And it's going to be enthusiasm, or rather, or rather, the lack thereof. I know a lot's been said about um, uh, more black voters than ordinarily um, uh, vote for Republicans, uh, voted for Trump in 2020, and there's a gender difference with some black men being willing to vote for Trump. But it's still a small number. Um, uh, essentially, the black vote still goes to uh, goes to Democrats. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, we'll find out, won't we? We'll find out in November. But isn't the uh, I'm, I'm uh, but isn't the margin kind of such that you know it doesn't actually take so much to to really swing things in that way? That's or correct. Not? 
it, it does. It's, um, you know, a few votes here and there. I mean, how did Trump win in 2016? Uh, I, I, I actually remember the numbers. It was 13,000 in Michigan, the flip, the state, three states that flipped, uh, like 22 or 23,000 in Wisconsin, or like 55, 50 some odd thousand in Pennsylvania. Um, but, um, and that those are small numbers for a national election. So, uh, and that's what happened in 2016. There were people who came out for, and I, and I knew this in 2008, and, and other folks said this too, that this huge turnout for Obama was not going to be sustained for anybody else. And I kept telling people, when Obama's name is not on the ballot anymore, the people who were disconnected before and came out just for him are going right back to being disconnected. And I guess the, you know, Hillary Clinton's campaign team didn't get that memo. Uh, they're not but, reading Black Agenda Report. No, they're not. Well, they weren't even, they weren't listening to their own people. I mean, you know, what a, what, what a debacle that for, for them uh, turned out to be. But I also hope that people see what has Biden done? Um, one of the reasons he's so weak is all the lies they told. Oh, he's going to cut child poverty in half. No, he didn't. Even with the COVID programs, he did no such thing. And those programs, poof, they're gone. They disappeared. Now they're letting states kick people off of Medicaid, kick people off of SNAP. And you haven't heard boo from Joe Biden. Well, it wasn't just that they disappeared. I think this is an important point that you're making, Margaret, uh, because I like literally if if if. Joe Biden or the Democratic Party were to take a full throttled approach to housing is a human right and we're going to ensure that people uh, get housing. We're going to freeze uh, rent. If they said we're going to guarantee health care is a fundamental human right and have Medicare for all, these policies have super majority support amongst the entire electorate. Uh, and that would animate their their own base. It would br it would bring those people. You see, this is the problem. People have become rightfully jaded over electoral politics when both sides are just throwing mud at one another. They don't really mean any of it. And this is the thing. Dave Chappelle's got a great riff on Donald Trump whenever uh, Chappelle basically I can't do uh, Chappelle uh, justice, but he basically says. Man, when, when he came out there and said, uh, the system's rigged, I was like, man, this white billionaire is telling the truth. And it was something, right? Because what does it tell us when a billionaire asshole like Donald Trump has better populist rhetoric than the neoliberal Democratic president? That's that's mind-blowing to me. Well, I remember during uh, the, the last few weeks of the campaign in 2016, I remember him giving a speech and saying, I want the Demo the Republican Party, I want the Republican Party to be the party of working people. And I said to myself, how did that get to be his line and not Hillary Clinton's line? Um, so yes, that's, that's absolutely uh, true. And that's how he was able to peel votes uh, um, uh, away from her. But I, I hope people see a larger problem here in depending on the electoral system at all. We have an oligarchy in this country um, that determines who runs, determines who who manages to raise money, determines who's on the ballot. Look at what they, I mean, everyone's talking about democracy. We've got to protect democracy, which we don't have anyway, from Trump. How did Biden get to be the nominee? 
the oligarchs, they had smoke-filled room meetings. They said, we're going to go with Joe. And that was the end of it. Everybody else dropped out. Uh, and he was the one uh, that they went with. That's not democracy, but that's how, um, you know, that's how politics works in this country. But you know, so, Margaret, I, um, I want I want to uh, bring up Jacqueline's uh, comment here where she says they have nowhere else to go, right? I mean, this is kind of like, this is what, right. I mean, this is what the Democrats continue to say all the time and why they think sure. they can get away with withholding any actual change that benefits regular people, right? And I think what we're seeing with this like abandoned Biden campaign and the willingness of these Muslim Americans to stand up and actually say, take a stand. I mean, this is what's so I feel like fresh and surprising and unusual in this particular moment. Right. Because like I feel, I feel like if you look back and you see what the squad has done and I, I just put quotes around that word because it's I, I'm so hateful towards them, but. But yeah. you look at the lack of you look at the lack of backbone that they've showed, right? Unwillingness to stand up and actually push back against pretty much anything. Anything that they've done that's notable has all been just rhetorical. There's been no mm -hmm. real, you know, and, and this is kind of what we're seeing over and over again, which is this like willingness to do nothing more than just speak the words that they think is is what's appropriate politically, right? That they can get away with and not lose their like you know their interview on msnbc right and I, I feel like what you're seeing here with what these what this movement is doing is actually being willing to say like we're going to take the hit like we don't care if you think that we are that it's our fault that trump gets elected we don't care like you're going to say that and that's fine but we don't care we're actually drawing the line and we're going to hit you where it hurts which is we're not going to vote for you and and so like and you when you brought that up when you when you mentioned that they had you had these pastors that signed this letter where they were really kind of pushing forward this idea that no we need a ceasefire right you're starting to see that there is a willingness to push back against like the establishment however right unless it's organized and as, and unless you have a group of people that are willing to really take that um kind of like the, the 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 social the negative social consequences that may come from that i mean we can see we see that like you know ralph nader is still suffering from being blamed for losing like uh, losing uh gore the election in 2000 right i mean like there is there is a a social consequence to to standing up to power in this way but 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 margaret where is there any leadership in the american black community to be able to willy to willy be willing to do such a thing is, is does it exist at all is are there people well i you know the reason i thought that uh, uh letter from those pastors was so interesting is that they are showing us the way um you know we refer to the black misleadership class at black agenda report the elected officials and others now there's a black misleadership media class the people with the msnbc shows who will go on uh, twitter X platform and and say, oh, it was terrible for people to confront Biden in that church. So there's this whole propaganda network to silence people. But I think you don't need a lot. I, I think the people are there already. People vote with their feet and in some cases away from the polling place. Uh, people who are speaking up to Biden to his face are showing that 
the the crack has is the cracks are starting to show, and uh, the market marching in lockstep is ending. So there is no co coherent leadership yet, but I think there can be. I think we're going to see that this time around between now uh, and November, um, because it's just gotten to be too much. You know, you were uh, talking uh, um, about housing as a human right. Has Biden ever given a speech on homelessness? I mean, no. ever? No. And not, it's not a major policy speech, no. No. And there are every American city, you see people sleeping on the streets, uh, poor people being evicted. This is a huge issue for millions of people. It's an, it's an issue that would win an election. But as long as you have this oligarchy saying you can't go over there, you can't talk about Medicare for all. You can't. I mean, let's talk about Israel again. They have free health care in Israel. On our dime, anything they have in Israel is on the dime of the U.S. taxpayer. Uh, so, and you see what they, and you know, people can't always articulate it, but when you see Congress um, uh, marching, um, these these things are bipartisan: money for Ukraine, money for Israel, the Biden administration going. Um, uh, uh, circumventing Congress to give uh, more aid to Israel. You see what they can do. So people may not be able to quote, they may, may not be wonkish and be able to quote these things chapter and verse, but you better believe it. They know. They know that their tax dollars are going all over the world. Their money is going to do things they don't want it to do. But they know that when it comes to them, the answer is always no. And uh, so we're seeing splits um, and we're going to see more splits. We haven't talked about Trump himself. I think um, these efforts to keep him off the ballot are going to backfire. Um, I think uh, uh, something like a third to 40 percent of people in the country just see this as an effort to cheat him out of an um, an election. I also think he has not been, you know, even those who say if you lead an insurrection, you can't run for president. He hasn't been convicted of that. That's the end of the story. Uh, and yeah. if the Democrats want to win, they've got to produce for the people. And and they, you, but I, they don't want to anyway. They don't. And that's <laughs> the thing. We have to really be clear about something. That, like, again, if you are listening to this program, if you're watching us live, I want to be, and you're a member of the Democratic Party, I do not believe that you are my enemy. So I make a very clear distinction between the leadership of the Democratic Party and the rank and file members of the Democratic Party, who in my experience are infinitely more progressive and left uh, than the leadership of the Democratic Party. Because the leadership of the Democratic Party, at their core, support capitalism, white supremacy, and empire. That's it. End of story. Full stop. And at the end of the day, we have to heed the words of one of the great American thinkers that w this continent has ever produced. Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Those are resounding words. Almost everybody I know can quote it. But you know what the next sentence is? Show me the amount of injustice that any people are willing to tolerate, and I will show you the exact amount of injustice that will be visited upon them. And that's the sentence, folks, that we ought to be paying attention to. Because if we 
quietly submit or just grumble, right? That we're never going to make any change. Throughout all of history, it has taken organized mass resistance in order to extract genuine concessions from the predatory class. And I'll say this, I know we're coming to the end of the time, but you know, I'm reminded, I, I often say I got my start in politics as a student at the University of Houston during the anti-apartheid movement. And we weren't trying to elect anybody, but make no mistake, we were very much involved in politics. Here's what I learned, Margaret, as a young man, that when we showed up and and uh, said our little spiel of three minutes uh, at the Board of Regents, or, or we petitioned and submitted thousands of signatures, or if we did a postcard campaign, if we played by the rules that the ruling elite told us to play with, not a damn thing happened. But you know what I learned? When we showed up and disrupted the Board of Regents meeting, when, when they threatened to arrest us, and we said, good, because we got the Houston Chronicle here, and we want you to arrest that like you just this institution literally just named me a Rhodes Scholar nominee to represent the University of Houston and now cart me to jail. I can't wait for that to show up on the news. All of a sudden I realized, oh, you have to be willing to disrupt power if you actually are serious about making change. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. And I would say to those people who still can't bring themselves to <clears throat> to leave the Democratic Party, I would repeat what you said. I'm, I don't see them as our enemy. I just wish that people were showed a little more courage, that they weren't so afraid of uh, Donald Trump being president, um, that they were willing to vote for Gen genocide. Joe is Biden's new nickname, and as well it should be, that people can see wh where are these big differences. We don't see them. And uh, I'm, and I'm going to repeat what I said. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm very concerned about Biden foreign policy. Uh, I have a lot of questions about this attack that killed those three service people. I do not believe the narrative we are being told. And despite what they say about we don't want a wider war in the region, that is exactly what they want. These hardliners in Washington want to attack Iran, and I. You know, you can say but Trump, but the day that the U.S. gets involved in a wider war in the Middle East, then I think it's fair to say, well, what is the big difference? I mean, it's true how, in so how, many ways. How can we how can you not agree that we are closer to the World War Three than I than we've been probably what since the Cuban Missile Crisis? Right. How, how is that not a red line? How is that a not a not a red line for for? Democrats? I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the red line can be if if world war doesn't cut it for you. It's like, well, what has to happen uh, uh, for you to you know to lose this? Uh, you know what? It, uh, FDR. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. I think it applies now. This fear that this one wing of the duopoly is going to save us because the other one is so evil and there's only one evil one. Um, and you can't talk about the evil done by the other party. That is the uh, fear. And uh, uh, that is what we have to be afraid of. And yeah. remember, our. I, I would tell people, if you can't think of anything else to do, Email your member of Congress and tell them ceasefire. Now, I will not vote for you if you don't push for a ceasefire. 
There it is. I mean, again, exercise power. Uh, we're coming to the end of the program, Margaret. I want to uh, conclude by thanking you very much for joining us. Uh, I'm going to uh, take you up on your offer. You told me, uh, sure, David, let's do this. It was fun. So we're going to make you a, a semi-regular uh, guest. We're going to put you in the rotation, so to speak. Uh, I'll be scanning Black Agenda Report. You know I read it uh, uh, yes, and uh, talk about it. So uh, we're, we're going to make sure to have you back. I also want to let viewers know and listeners that next week we'll be speaking with Kali Akuno. Kali Akuno is the founder of Cooperation Jackson. He is leading a new effort called the People's Network for Land and Liberation. And in the interest of full disclosure, he and I are working together to launch a, a, a new political formation, a 501c4 uh, called Build and Fight. And for us, this is to lift up the work that we both do in terms of building solidarity economy, like worker co-ops and community land trusts, like the building the alternatives. But we also have to be willing to fight. And that means engaging electoral politics without becoming an electoral fetishist. There's lots to talk about. That'll be next week on Redneck Gone Green. Kali Akuno will join us. I want to thank Jack Rabbit, the producer. Thank Margaret Kimberly. Most importantly, I want to thank you, the viewer, listener, for participating in this program. We're getting larger, stronger, and better organized. We just went over 4,100 subscribers on Substack. So I want to thank you for that. Please continue to like, comment, and share. Take care. Peace.